Well, good morning, friends. This is usually the point when visiting a sister congregation that I would say that it's good to be here. However, I am not there with you for obvious reasons. We're recording this message from Peterhead Baptist Church, and as a result, I feel a little bit as though this is one of those occasions where after choosing the stadium for the Champions League final, the team that plays there qualifies for the match. Not that I'm promising Champions League quality sermons today. I'm simply pointing out that I have the benefit of the familiarity and comfort of my usual surroundings. We continue in Paul's first letter to Timothy, this leadership manual that the apostle sends to his apprentice to encourage Timothy as he organizes and oversees the church in Ephesus. Today we will be looking at the whole of chapter 2. However, it's very full and pretty intense in some parts. So we will look at the first half up to verse 7 this morning and the second half from verse 8 this evening. But let's read the whole of the chapter together from the first verse. First Timothy chapter 2 then, reading from verse 1, this is the word of God. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's pray. Father God, we have so many things to thank you for, many that we are gratefully aware of, many that we are sadly ignorant of, and yet more that we take for granted. Lord, forgive us for our short-sightedness and remind us of the height, breadth, and depth of your activity in our lives and the blessings we enjoy as a result. And Lord, never let us lose our passion for your word. Never let us dismiss its power or importance in shaping the lives of each and every disciple that gives their heart to you. As we turn to these verses this morning, bless us with understanding. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit so that their meaning would not be missed. Challenge us and rebuke us, encourage us and build us up, all according to our need and your wisdom, Lord. For you know the sharp edges that need to be smoothed. You know the branches that must be pruned on all of us. And you know the words of inspiration and reassurance that will move us forward in our walk with you. May the imperfect stumbling words of your humble servant's mouth then, and the meditations of all our hearts, wherever you find us this morning, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know if you're aware of the board game, Pass the Bomb. It's a word game where players must think of words containing certain letters in certain places that are decided by cards and dice at the start of each round. 
But the main complication, as the name suggests, is that while each player is searching their vocabulary for answers, they are in possession of a bomb that has a random, unseen countdown set and will explode at the end of the timer. Once you have come up with your answers, you get to pass the bomb onto someone else, and you hope that it goes off before it comes back round the room to be your turn again. Why do I mention pass the bomb? Well, it's because having been given this passage that we're looking at this morning by Jonathan a few weeks ago, I feel a little bit as though I've been handed a live grenade. Because 1 Timothy 2 is one of the most controversy-laden and inflammatory chapters of Scripture that we'll find anywhere in the 66 books. From politics to Calvinism to fashion to the role of women in the church, there are so many points in here that we have argued over and and continue to argue over in the Christian church. So thanks, Jonathan. I'd love to say that what I've been given is out of order, but the reality is that this chapter is all about order. In the first seven verses, we read Paul's instructions on the order of service. From 8 to 11, we're looking at his urging about order in the church. And finally, from verses 12 to 15, we see how Paul's instructions are influenced by the order of creation. I say these are Paul's words, and they are in the sense that he wrote this letter to Timothy, But we know that he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means these directives come from the Lord himself. So, God telling us how to worship, how to act, and how to serve, there is great value in what we read here for the whole church family. And it all begins with the spiritual exercise that must underpin all of what we do as a community of faith. Reading from verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and charges him with the noble task of defending the faith. And the article that he gives top priority to here is the coming to the Lord in prayer. The first of all that the apostle speaks about does not mean that prayer should be the item at the top of the service plan and the opener for the Christian's time of worship together, but that it should be of primary significance and the first item to be written on the sheet, such as such is rather its importance. Well, we pray a number of times in our services, don't we? We give thanks, we confess our sins, we give glory to God, we bring our requests. We'll pray after the children's address, before the sermon, and to dedicate the offering, and we'll close our time together with a benediction. There are a number of ways in which we can pray. So which is it that we have to be giving top priority to in our service? Well, the apostle speaks of four different types of prayer in verse 1, and the Greek words have been helpfully defined by scholars and commentators as they attempt to differentiate between these descriptors that are pretty difficult to distinguish from one another. The first one, petitions, is translated as making requests for specific needs. The second, prayers, means bringing someone before God. The third that we have here in verse 1 as intercessions is defined as appealing boldly on behalf of someone. And the last term, thanksgiving, is to express thankfulness on behalf of those for whom we pray. There is obviously some overlap between these prayerful activities, but ultimately their message is that it is all types of prayer that we should be bringing and that those prayers should be brought on behalf of all types of people. And the diverse manner in which he describes them indicates the expansive and wide-ranging way in which they are to be brought to the feet of the Lord. How often do our congregational prayers of intercession stop at the town boundary? 
How often are we more concerned with Mrs. Buchan's ingrowing toenail and Mr. Strachan's lumbago than anything else? How often are they as broad and wide-ranging as this exhortation demands? How often do we implore God to bring revival to our land, renewal in our disciples, and reformation in our church? How often do we pray for our, our brothers and sisters in mission who are working in faraway lands, bringing the good news of the gospel to those who have never heard it? How often are our hearts and minds joined, raising up evangelists who are bringing the same message of hope to those who have never responded to it? What about those planting churches, those in persecuted churches, and the lost? One of the positives we've seen undoubtedly throughout the COVID-19 crisis has been a fresh willingness to embrace a huge global issue and to petition the Lord on its various aspects. Because this is how we are supposed to pray as a church. And not just in the face of emergency and catastrophe. Our intercessions must have a global perspective and address the concerns of all types of people. From those who have literally nothing in the world to those who walk the corridors of power. As we read there in verse 2. Now we live in a time where the art of political debate is dying. Almost everyone you seem to speak to these days has an entrenched political opinion, which is usually as emphatically anti the opposition as it is supportive of the parties and policies that they favor. And so whenever the subject of praying for our leaders comes up, the conversation can become quite heated. But when this letter was first read in Ephesus back in the AD 60s, there would have been similar disquiet. The prayers of the Jewish synagogue did not include intercession for those in power, especially if they were Gentile. And that tradition carried on into the early church, particularly when the kings and rulers tended to be pagan and enemies of the gospel. So the concept of praying for those in civic authority was pretty radical. But as the apostles' words reveal here in verse 2, it makes perfect sense. For the well-being and prosperity of those in leadership, the tranquility and serenity of a peaceful territory, and the wisdom and discernment to deal with any issues that arise are not only good for those who wield power, but they are good for the church as well. Because good leadership will value peace and pursue it. Good leadership will administer justice. And in the stable society that results from such careful governance, Christians are not perceived to be threatening revolutionaries. And so we are free to worship to be obedient to the word, and to evangelize and spread the gospel. There aren't many people in Scotland who are of a political persuasion that appreciates both Boris and Nicola, but the instruction here is to pray for them both, and their fellow representatives, and their advisors and researchers, and everyone who contributes to the making of policy and law in our land. We will regularly find in our inbox some petition or other where we are being encouraged to challenge our leaders over some further erosion of our Christian freedoms. And it's good to hold our politicians to account and to have our voices heard on these issues. But we must also make our voices heard in the throne room of heaven as we pray for those in leadership too. Now, Paul may have been using royalty and political leaders as an extreme example to show just how broad the reach of our public prayers must be, but we must not forget the instruction of the first verse and limit ourselves to praying for those of the highest rank. The urging is to pray for all, and the reasons for doing so were spelled out for us from verse 3. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all 
people. What better reason do we need to do anything than the fact that it is good and that it pleases the Lord? This is, in fact, the greatest motivation to pray as we are bid for the pleasure of God as our ultimate standard for all Christian worship. But there is a little bit more force to these words that Christians who have come from a Jewish background may be able to pick up on because it echoes a command that is found several times in the book of Deuteronomy, including chapter 6, verse 18, which says, Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. Good in this context means correctness of behavior as measured by the Lord. And the second term, pleasing, carrying the sense of being acceptable, brings to mind the instructions for sacrifice that we find in various places in the book of Leviticus, including twice in the opening four verses of that book. Now, why do we find this language of the Old Testament cult here in these instructions for prayer, unless to emphasize its importance to God? Unless to compare how centrally significant prayer is to the community of faith that's built around the new covenant in Christ, as much as the sacrificial system was for the old covenant. And though this wording here that describes God as God our Savior may be unusual, because it's normally Jesus specifically, God the Son, who has the title of Savior applied to him, we need to remember that the Father and the Holy Spirit are also at the heart of enabling salvation from sin for humankind. Which means that in these opening verses, we are given the command to pray, we are given the indicator of the importance of prayer, and we are reminded of the appropriateness of praying on behalf of all men and women in an evangelistic manner to the one whose nature is to save. What does he say in Isaiah 45 and from verse 21? There is no other God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. It is then important for us to petition the Lord that souls will hear of him and will turn to him, given that there is no other means by which they can be cleansed of the stain of their sin. But it's also important to pray these prayers because they are in synergy and cooperation with the will of Almighty God. The Methodist missionary and theologian E. Stanley Jones, writing about prayer, said, If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me, or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. And the will of God, as revealed here in verse 4, is that all will be saved. Okay, we've moved on from politics and we're on to controversy number two as we wade into the debate on Calvinism and Arminianism, on predestination and limited atonement and loads of other big theological words as well. Now, it's important to remember that this letter was written against a backdrop of some, of some very exclusive claims on who it is that is saved from the penalty of their sins. We see through several of Paul's letters the issues he has with the Judaizers, a religious party that believed Gentile converts to Christianity must first observe the Jewish rite of circumcision and must continue to adhere to the cultural requirements of the Old Covenant for their salvation. We see elsewhere, especially in the letters of John, a rebuttal of the teaching of the Gnostics who claimed that they were in possession of a further special revelation from God that puts them in a salvation category all of their own. So when Paul describes the Lord's desire for all to be saved, it is an important statement that emphasizes that the Christian faith is inclusive and welcoming and effective in contrast to the claims of the various cults of the day. 
but does it go as far as to preach universalism? The idea that all human beings will be saved and restored to a right relationship with God, irrespective of their response to the gospel? Or is it the smoking gun that confirms the doctrine of unlimited atonement, that Jesus died to make amends for the sins of the whole world, as opposed to the elect alone, i.e. those that will come to faith in the Lord, as Calvinism would state? Well, as to the first one, the answer is a very definite no. Didn't you read recently in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, where, speaking of Jesus, the apostle writes, those who would believe in him receive eternal life. You'll also cover the same truth in chapter 3 verse 16 and chapter 4 verse 10 as you go through this letter together. So any suggestion that the apostle is teaching that humanity will be saved regardless of their convictions concerning Jesus' sacrifice is false. As for the second question, well, that has inspired a lot of debate. When we read passages like the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, it's abundantly clear that not everyone will be saved. And so with this conflicting message that that, that, uh, Matthew chapter 25 would state and that this um, statement makes in verse 4 here in 1 Timothy 2, uh, we have to ask ourselves whether God is actually sovereign. After all, shouldn't God get what he wills if he is supreme? And if he wills that all humankind be saved, then why is it that some will be cast out of his presence and be sentenced to spiritual death at the final judgment? This has led to some very interesting speculation about the the difference between God's desire and God's decree, this being the idea that God has a general purpose, which is that all would come to faith, but that that he makes a specific decision which sees only the elect rescued and redeemed. And that whole discussion is all very theologically interesting. But ultimately, the solution to this riddle is a lot more straightforward and a lot more procedural. And it involves properly analyzing the context and the language used in this verse in this chapter and across the whole of Paul's written contribution to the New Testament. It's not the first time that the apostle has made a statement about the breadth of God's intention concerning salvation. He does so too in Romans 3.29 where he asks, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. And again, he makes a similar statement in chapter 11, verses 26 to 32 of that same book. And in each of those cases, the main purpose of his statement is to clarify that God intends the opportunity for salvation to include the non-Jewish world. So there's a wider message that Paul is bringing in his letters that verse 4 here fits into. That's how the context impacts our understanding of it. And then there's the issue of language too, and just exactly how we are to understand the word all. Does it mean all as in everybody? Or does it mean all as in all kinds? You see, we find the same word three times in this chapter. Here, with reference to all being saved, in verse 1, concerning all being prayed for, and in verse 6, speaking of the ransom Christ paid for all. Now, did we read in verse 1 and pick up the meaning that we are expected to pray for every single person on the planet individually, by name, all 7.6 billion of them? No. In fact, look back up the page and look at the transition from verse 1 to verse 2. Paul follows the words all people with a reference to a type of person, a king, a ruler, not a specific leader, but a kind. What about verse 6? Did Jesus really give his life as a ransom for all? That's not what he told his disciples in Mark 10 verse 45. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does that mean that the apostle is contradicting the Lord? Well, only if his use of the word all here means each and every single person. 
But if it means all kinds, then not only is there no confusion between these verses, but we have this wonderful statement in here that there is no nation on earth and no rank of society, no alternative sexuality, no educational standard, no previous religious upbringing that is excluded from the power of the gospel and the salvation that it brings. You see, if the only thing we leave verse 4 with here is the security that it doesn't actually threaten our Calvinist viewpoint, then we will have missed the point of this revelation entirely. Because it's not here to affirm a theological framework. It's here to demonstrate that the God of creation, who promised in the immediate aftermath of the entry of sin to the world that he would deal with the problem, is not restricting his solution to any one people group. Not even the people he chose as his special possession. Which means that no matter where you come from, what you do or have done, no matter what it is that you believe defines you or characterizes you, Christ is the Savior you are looking for. Because he died for Scotland. He died for Lanarkshire. He died for Hamilton. For everyone in your town? No. But that doesn't mean he didn't die for you. Friends, even if I was able to be among you this morning, I wouldn't know enough about any of you to know where you stand with the Lord. So I'm not going to pretend that I do when I'm talking to a camera. But if you don't know him, if you have never fallen on your knees before him in repentance and given your life to him in faith, then now is the time. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Take advantage of the inclusive message of the gospel that is extended to where you are and beyond. Come to a knowledge of the truth as this passage urges us. The truth that we are sinners who are unworthy to come into the presence of a perfect and holy God, desperately in need of a Savior who will redeem us. And it's here in our passage that we move from the inclusive nature of the Christian faith to the exclusive. Reading from verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Although there is no distinction in the type of person that the gospel must reach and that it can be effective for, it will only be effective in bringing souls from death to life when a commitment is made to Jesus Christ because he is the only mediator between humanity and God. He is the go-between that stands in the gap between the sinless perfection of the Father and fallen, polluted, sin-stained humankind. And the reason he can occupy that role is because of his unique dual nature, being simultaneously fully God, and as verse 5 attests when it calls him the man, Christ Jesus, being fully human also. He has communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit since he too is divine, and he is a full member of the human race. Therefore, who else can bring both parties together? Who else can speak on behalf of one to the other? There is no one. And so no other religious practice, no other savior or sage or guru or spiritual leader can offer any promise whatsoever other than they bring eternal separation from God, which is the just punishment of our, for our sin, because they cannot reconcile creature and creator. But our need to put our faith in Jesus for salvation is not just because he fulfills this role. It's not just because of who he is. It's because of what he's done. Because Christ did not simply serve as an ambassador, passing messages between the throne room of heaven and the people of the world. He laid down his life willingly and voluntarily on a Roman cross. 
not to satisfy the justice of human beings because he had committed no crime. No, his blood was shed to satisfy God's justice. He died in our place, serving the sentence of our sin. His blood was shed to pay what we alone cannot. And having met the cost of our ransom, he enables those who confess his lordship and ask his forgiveness to come into the presence of God the Father, cleansed of our transgressions and bearing his own righteousness and looking forward to eternity spent in his company. They don't call it the good news for nothing. And it's news that the world has to hear. As Paul says there in verse 7, And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. The apostles' commission was to take this message to the non-Jewish population of the planet. It was to take it beyond Jerusalem, beyond Palestine, and to the surrounding nations. His purpose was to bring truth to those who had never heard of Jesus Christ or his atoning death that is the antidote to our sin. His mission to have all people everywhere hear the gospel. And that same task is ours now. This is our responsibility. Just as Paul was appointed to that task by the Lord, as we read in Acts 22, verse 21, we have also been assigned to it. When the risen Christ stood on a mountainside and told his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, those instructions were for you and me, brothers and sisters. And if that sounds a bit daunting, if that sounds like the sort of thing that terrifies you even, then now you know why it is so important that we pray the prayers we are urged to in the very first verse of this passage. Because this is hard work. And if we apply ourselves to it fully, then it will be painful work. We will lose friends. We may lose liberty. And there will be times of great discouragement. But with the petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving of your brothers and sisters in Christ, there will be fruit. Whether we are blessed with being able to see it and experience it, well, that's down to God. We just have to trust him and we have to obey his instructions for ordering our worship. And we will continue on this theme this evening where, God willing, we'll look at verses 8 to 15 from this chapter and maintaining order in our fellowship. Until then, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and for this passage from it. And as we process its message, we offer our apology for underusing our prayers and underestimating the difference that they make for your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we limit the range of our prayers. Encourage us, we ask, to see beyond the controversies and remember the command to offer all kinds of intercessions for all kinds of people. Lord, we pray for every nation on this earth and every people group, from our friends and neighbors to the most isolated tribes and indigenous peoples around the world. Lord, may they all hear the good news of salvation from sin through faith in Christ. Provide opportunities for your servants to share your gospel. Give them the words to speak. And Lord, build your church. We remember our leaders at this time, those at Westminster and Holyrood. And we ask that in this time of crisis that you would lead, guide, and direct them as they make decisions that will concern the safety and well-being of our nation and its people. And may they too, Lord, come to surrender their lives to you and no joy and peace in full measure. We ask these things, Lord, for our blessing, for the blessing of others, and the advance of your kingdom. But above all, we ask for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.